My name is Vito. That means I'm Italian. Um, I, uh, I, that's, see, that's, a, that's an easy line in, in New Jersey to say you're Italian. Everybody says so. But I am Italian. And I went to Italy a couple of years ago. It was the first time I'd ever been there. And it was an amazing experience. Italy gave us all the things that Italy is so famous for, like the food. Um, it seemed like everywhere we went, the meal was better than the last one. It didn't matter if you went to a really fancy restaurant or it didn't matter if you went to a hole in the wall. There was one meal that wasn't as good. We got some street food. You know, the shows now that say like, hey, street food is great. We went and got a veal stomach sandwich. And um, it wasn't great. Uh, it was really bad. We each had one bite of it and decided that's as much as we wanted of that. Um, but beautiful and wonderful food in Italy and also wonderful art. Going into these museums and seeing these amazing transcendent visions in paintings and in sculptures. And the amazing thing about Italy is that so many of the great treasures of art are actually in churches. You go into a church and it just looks ordinary on the outside and you go in and there's one or two or three Caravaggios there on the wall. Amazing. Or this uh, one, one church, uh, Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. And on the ceiling, it's all painted with a lapis lazuli. That's a mineral that you ground down and it makes ultramarine. And I don't know what all that means, but it's super beautiful. Amazing. There was one church, though, that we went to where the art was a little bit more interesting. This one guy said, have you been to the Oratorio Rosario del San Domenico? And I said, I don't even know what you just said, but uh, he said, you should go check that out. And he had sort of a wry smile on his face. He said, you should go look at the art that's in this chapel. We said, okay. So I went with my wife and my son, and we began to wind our way around this corner. We walked in the door, and this is what we saw. It's this beautiful space. We looked at the walls, it looked real beautiful. We thought this is good. The walls were kind of white. We looked a little closer. There's kind of this intricate design shaped into the walls, but it was hard to see what it was. And then we looked closer and we could see that it wasn't just a design. There were actual sculptures in the wall. Tons and tons of sculptures, dozens of them. And we looked even closer and then we could see what most of the sculptures were. They're these little guys. They're flying all over the place. They have wings. They're kind of flying around doing whatever cherubs do. They're, I, this guy's handing a cup of soup to this other guy, I think. I'm not entirely sure. But they were singing and they were flying and they were doing all the things. And some of them were really innocent and loving looking like these guys. They looks friendly. You know, they're all kind of hugging each other and that's fun. Some of them were not as innocent though. Uh, this guy pulling this guy's hair. Uh, there are some other ones that I really couldn't show you because they were being so naughty. Um, but they were all over the walls, all over of these stucco white walls. Now, here's the audience participation part. Um, what is that? It's a cherub. What's another name for a cherub? It's an angel. We know that this is an angel, correct? We know this is an angel. Why? Because we've all seen enough Renaissance art. We've all gotten enough Christmas cards in the mail. We've seen the posters where angels are these innocent, blameless, chubby, cute uh, cherubs with wings and rosy cheeks. Sometimes both of them rosy. But yeah, see, you'll, you'll get that later on when you're driving home. Um, now, if you had only ever seen Renaissance art depictions of angels, you'd say, yeah, that's an angel. But if you only had to go on what the Bible says about angels, you would never think that that's an angel. 
Because when you look in the Bible, when anybody sees an angel, they are terrified. They, they can't speak. Sometimes they get down on the ground and sometimes they are so frozen and so afraid that it almost feels like they're dead. But when we look at these angels, we say, oh, angels are cute. Angels are innocent. And so, but that's not the case. But so much of the art that we have, the angels look really, really tame. Like, you know, the angels that are depicted coming down in the gospel of Luke, they come down and they speak to shepherds. You know, those angels, man, they get it the worst in art. Usually they look like a middle school girl's choir. You're kind of flying around and they have very nicely conditioned hair and they have long silk robes on. And then sometimes they're on either side of the poster or painting and they're holding a ribbon and the ribbon says, glory to God. But do you know what happens actually in the gospel of Luke when the angels see, when the shepherds see the angels? They are horror stricken. And also when the shepherds see the angels, here's why I took us here. You ready for the point now? You ready? It says that the shepherds see a host of angels. A host, it's a Greek word, stradia, and it means, it's a military term. It means battalion or platoon. So in other words, what they were seeing was this battalion, this platoon of spiritual warriors. The shepherds were learning something. We're gonna learn something today too. Here's the question. Why is it that at the birth of Jesus, these spiritual warriors show up? Why is it that at the birth of Jesus, this army of angelic soldiers comes up? An army only shows up if there's a battle. An army only shows up if there is a war to be fought. I brought all of this up because in the last six, seven, eight weeks, Christian has been taking us through this question. What did Jesus do? Specifically, we're thinking about the cross. When you think about the cross, it's the center of the Christian life. What did Jesus do on the cross? Why did he die on the cross? What was happening there? And as we've learned over the past number of weeks, there's so much going on on the cross, more than we could ever know. You can't just simplistically say, this is what happened on the cross. The Bible just has too many things to say about it. So for example, one of the things the Bible says is, Jesus was our substitute. The judge was judged in our place. The judge gets out of his box and he goes into the defendant's box and he takes our place so that we can go free. That's one way to think about it. Another way to think about it is in 2 Corinthians, it says Jesus became sin. I don't think we have enough time to ever begin to think about what that might mean. All the individual ways that we have hurt each other or been hurt, Jesus becomes those things so that we can be forgiven. That's another way that the Bible talks about what Jesus did. Here's another way. It says that Jesus took on death. He wore it like a cloak. He let it ground him down so that then we could receive life. All of those and more are biblical and good ways to think about what Jesus did on the cross. But today, which is the last day of our sermon series, today we're going to think about one last way that the Bible talks about what Jesus did on the cross. And we have to think about it in this full-orbed way. We have to think about all the different ways that Jesus did this for us because when it comes to love, and that's why Jesus went to the cross for us, when it comes to love, there's always more than we know. So here's a question. This is a way of us to think about. There's always more to love than we know. I would like you to think right now about how your parents loved you. As you were growing up, how did your parents love you? I'm speaking especially to those of you who grew up in homes where you knew your parents took care of you well. They were good and faithful. I know that that's not true for everyone. 
But as your parents raised you, as they gave to you their love, how did they do it? You don't have to say it out loud, but just think in your mind, how did your parents love you? And one of the ways they loved you is they paid for everything. They paid for everything. You didn't pay for anything at all. Didn't pay for any of your diapers or any of the formula or any of the play school or any of the child care, none of the clothes, none of the Tonka toys, nothing. You didn't pay for any of it. For 18 years, they worked, you didn't, they paid for everything. Was that the only way that your parents loved you? No. Your parents also loved you by giving you wisdom. This is a confusing world. It's a difficult world to figure out what's right and what's wrong, and children need to be instructed. And so good parents give their children wisdom. They help them to go into the right way and not the wrong way, the way of good, not the way of evil. That's another way that your parents loved you. Another way your parents loved you is they gave you comfort. Sometimes when your arm got broken, or sometimes when your heart got broken, they would sit with you and say, it's not always going to be like this. They would bear with you and they would walk you through those difficult times. We need somebody to do that for us. It's always like that. Love is always bigger than we think. And it's the same way that Jesus loves you. You can't ever put a measure on it. It's wider and more comprehensive than you can ever imagine. Jesus has done that for us. He has loved us in ways that we can barely describe. And today we're going to describe one more way. And the way that we're going to talk about today, sometimes we don't think about what Jesus did for us on the cross in the way that I'm going to talk about today, but it's actually maybe one of the ways that's talked about the most in the Bible. I'm going to show you two scriptures right now that kind of sum it up. Here's the first one. This comes from 1 John 3 through 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. What did Jesus do? He came for a fight. He came for a battle. He came into our world and into your life to fight for you, to destroy the devil's work. We're going to open this up in just a second. But what this is stating right here is that Jesus Christ has come to fight for you and to wrest you away from the one who has you in his clutches. So what did Jesus do? He came for a battle, for a fight with the devil. And specifically on the cross, what did Jesus do? Here's another verse. Jesus became human so that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. What did Jesus come to do? He came to destroy the one who has the power of death. He came to fight on your behalf. He came to be your champion, so that he could wrest you free from what you cannot free yourself from. And the New Testament, I'm going to show this to you today. The New Testament is completely full of a vision of what Jesus did on the cross. Most often we think a lot about forgiveness. You should. On the cross, Jesus secured your forgiveness. You think about overcoming death. You should. But one of the ways the Bible talks about it over and over and over and over is that there is a spiritual battle going on and Jesus came to break the power of the devil and all the powerful spiritual forces that have us in bondage and he came to do that for us. And do you know why he came to do that for us? He came to do it out of love. Think again about parents. Parents who care for their children. Parents will not think twice about laying down their life for their children. It won't even cross their minds. When they see their children in bondage or in trouble or in peril, they'll step in and they will bear the cost of it even to their own death. And that's the way Jesus looks at each one of you. To see you in any kind of bondage, he will bear it all. And so we're going, to look at, we're going to look at four points. We're going to talk about this. Jesus winning the fight for you. One of the ways that theologians have been talking about this for a long time, the Latin term is 
Christus Victor. What did Jesus do? It's the Christus Victor way of thinking about it. Or translated into common everyday English, Jesus Christ is the champion. He is your champion. So what I want to look at today are four points. We're going to look at this fight that Jesus takes on for us. Who was in the fight? What did Jesus accomplish in the fight? How did Jesus win the fight? And then the fourth point is, what now? What do we do with that? You see that four points? You know, I used to be a Presbyterian pastor, and they would only ever let me do three points. But I'm speaking of getting out of bondage. I am free now. I can do as many as I want. Any, as many. So, yeah. That's terrible. That was really, that was, that was uh, pandering. It was really, really bad. Let's get to what we're doing here. Who was in the fight? Jesus came for a fight. Who's in the fight? Well, this is very, pretty simple. Who's in the fight? Jesus and the devil. Jesus and the powers of darkness. Now, in this fight, or Jesus and the devil, they are not two equal and, uh, and kind of parallel figures because the Bible tells us that Jesus is human, but he's also fully divine. He's God. Satan, the devil, is in the Bible not portrayed as a mythic figure. He is a real created being, but he's finite. He's powerful. He's more powerful than all of us but he's not more powerful than Jesus. So the two that are in this battle are Jesus and the devil. One of the ways that the New Testament talks about this is when Jesus is baptized, his first act of public ministry, he is baptized by John the Baptist. Do you remember the very first thing that happens after he's baptized? Who shows up? The devil. He sees Jesus entering into the fray, into the fight, and he tries to oppose Jesus. Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days. The devil tempts him. Here is the first picture that we have, maybe not the first, but one of the first, of Jesus and the devil. They are the two that are in the fight. But here are two more ways to think about this. I'm going to be showing two scriptures here. Here's the first one from 1 John. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is a description of the battle. It's a description of the reality of this world, that Jesus comes into it and the world into which Jesus comes. Listen to me. It's a description of our world which is in the grips of darkness. That the reason that Jesus came is because we are in bondage. We're in a kind of prison. And here's one more place. This is described in a different way in Ephesians. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This is talking about you now. This is your life today. But against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When it talks here about rulers and authorities, it's not talking about presidents or kings or Congress people or any authorities like that. It's talking about spiritual forces in this world that we cannot see, but which exert force and power into our lives. Spiritual forces that play themselves out in individual people's lives and spiritual forces that also wind their way through institutions. And so the picture that's being drawn here is a picture of a world in which we can't see everything that's happening, that there are forces that we can't see. And I know that some of you probably, you've heard this before and you think, yep, I believe that. I believe that Satan is real. I believe that the devil is working his power, that he's trying to wrest me away from love and faithfulness, and he's trying to bring this world into death and destruction. There might be some of you who are like, eh, I don't know about that. I'm not sure. Here's a question. This is just maybe a little diagnostic. Has there ever been a time in your life where something so good happened in your life, something so unexpected, 
that you couldn't have engineered, that seemed like a coincidence, but you just knew it wasn't a coincidence. It just had God's fingerprints all over it. You thought, this has to be something beyond me, something good. Has that ever happened in your life at all? Yeah. Okay. Now let's turn the coin over. Let's flip it over. Has there ever been a time in your life where something so destructive happened or so absurd or so wrong or so dark that just didn't seem like it had any any kind of origin in anything human? Have you ever thought there is something beyond? This is not, this is some kind of dark place. Have you ever felt or seen that? That's the picture that the Bible is drawing. That everything that's happening in our life can't be attributable just to human interaction. That we don't live in a strictly materialist world. It's saying here that there are forces, that there are cosmic powers over this present darkness. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And here's the part of the sermon where I have to preach bad news. The forces of evil in this world want you to be in bondage. There are dark forces in this world that want to bend you away from love and redemption and forgiveness and mercy and care and want to bend you into division and darkness and death. And I'm saying that this is the bad news and maybe I have to convince you of this, but I suspect as I look out that I probably don't have much convincing to do that it happens all over in different kinds of ways in our world. It happens in our personal lives. It happens in our individual lives. Some of you may have uh, experience with addiction. Maybe you yourself have had experience with addiction or maybe you've known somebody in your life that you loved who had experience with addiction. I've had experience with that. People that I love in my life, I've heard people say about addiction, it feels like there's a monster. It feels like there's a, that there's a power over me that I cannot break. That there are forces that we cannot account for. It doesn't just have to be an addiction either. It could be in your everyday life. You ever been in a conversation, an interaction? And you look back on the interaction, you think, something came over me. I said something I did not want to say. I did something I did not want to do. That's not to absolve us of our guilt. We're responsible for what we do. But the scripture is saying that there's our force, there are forces, there are powers that are greater than us that are going to try to drag us into. See, our lives are not just about bad habits. This is war. That this is a fight that you and I are in. And this is why Jesus Christ comes into this world because this is not something that we can account for ourselves. It happens in our personal lives. It also happens in a much bigger scale too. Everybody's talking about our culture today, how divided our culture is, yes? Does it ever feel to you sometimes like this culture is divided in such a way that's like, wait a minute, this is beyond us. Wait, we can't fix this. Now, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't contribute to it, contribute to health and healing and wholeness. Absolutely, we should. But does it ever feel like something like, man, there's something that wants us apart. There's something that's trying to break us down. There's violence and absurdity and insanity in the world that is bigger than we are. That is the picture that the Bible is painting. Let me give you a quote from a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a theologian in uh, Germany in the 20s and 30s and 40s. He was one of the few theologians that opposed the rise of Hitler and Nazism. And for it, he paid with his life. He ended up in a concentration camp. It was liberated about two weeks after he was executed. And this is what he wrote. He wrote this in the 30s. This is before really the great rise of Nazism. He said, how can one close one's eyes to the fact that the demons themselves have taken over rule of the world. That it is the powers of darkness who have here made an awful conspiracy. 
And it's not just back then. It's now. And I'm not saying this to scare you or to say something spooky. I'm saying to say, who's in the fight? What are the terms? And the terms are Jesus is coming to this world to free us from these demonic forces. So that's the first thing. Who is in the fight? It's Jesus and the demonic forces that bend us towards death. So that's who. Now we're going to get to the what. What did Jesus do in this fight? What was he trying to do in this fight? And I want to show you two absolutely wonderful verses. This is a description of what Jesus has done for us already in the fight. This is what took place on the cross. Listen. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the part that I've been looking forward to telling you. This is the part that I hope God will give me the strength and each one of you the strength to receive. Jesus Christ has come to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that's what he's done on the cross. It's already happened. Jesus Christ has has taken you away from the dead-end alleys and dungeons of your lives and transferred you into the kingdom of the son that he loves. The son who delivered us from the pit that we could not get ourselves out of. The son who has broken the bondage of the sins that we keep repeating. You have a new king and you're in a new kingdom. And I'm not talking about heaven. Heaven is real and heaven is the place that God receives us into by his mercy at the end of our lives. But what I'm talking about is real for you right now. Jesus Christ has broken the power of sin and death in your life so that you are free. You have a new king and you are in a new kingdom. You and I are living in ways in which if we have the eyes to see it, we have a freedom which a lot of times we sort of just take, we don't take a look at it as we really should. When you get home this afternoon, if you have a passport, some of you have passports, right? Take a look at your passport. You'll see if you open it up and you'll see, and it used to say the kingdom of darkness as residence, and it's been scratched out. And there it says the kingdom of the son whom he loves. Nobody is really fooled with your passport. This is an illustration. This is what preachers do. An image, it's a picture saying your passport, your residence is not New Jersey. It's not the United States. It's the kingdom of the son that he loves. Take a look at another verse. Take this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He disarmed. They don't have power over you anymore. The powers that keep us in bondage, are you're free of them. You might still be in a cell, but if you push the door, it's open. And it's been opened because Jesus Christ has shattered the gates of hell. And does this mean then that life is easy and temptation no longer besets you? No, of course not. But what it does mean is that a death blow has been delivered to the devil. A death blow has been delivered to death. A death blow has been delivered to your sin and it's dying. And you don't have to be beholden to it anymore. Let me do one more World War II illustration. Much, many historians will say that by the middle of 1943, it was assured that the Nazis were going to lose. Just the facts of the matter were that they were going to, but it was two more years before the actual war ended. And it's the same thing what Jesus Christ has done for us. On the cross, he has put death to death. And it's still kicking and screaming, and it's still kicking and screaming in your life, and it's still trying to get a hold of you, but it is dying. It's no longer your Lord. You no longer have that king. He's not your king anymore. The Lord Jesus, who laid down his life for you, is the one who has set you free. 
And so what did Jesus came to do? He came to do, he came to transfer you. This word transfer that's used up here, when it says transfer, that's a word that's often used for when an occupying army comes into a place, takes people prisoners and brings them back. And what Jesus has done is he transferred you back home. You get to come home. You're not in bondage anymore. Salvation is this cosmic event. And it doesn't just apply each, to each one of you individually. It applies to our whole world. Salvation isn't just forgiveness of your personal guilt. It is that. But it's also a liberation for the whole world. So that's the second thing. What did Jesus do in the fight? He freed you. He transferred you. He made it so that you don't have to be beholden to those things anymore. Here's the third point. How did he do it? How did Jesus win the fight? We've been looking at two scriptures each time. This time we're just going to do one. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Let me, let me try to break this down for you. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. The children are you. Humanity. Brothers and sisters like the people around you. We share in flesh and blood. We're human beings. We're flesh and blood. He himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He became human too. He saw your condition. You're in flesh and blood. You're in bondage. He says, I'm going to jump in too. So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. By his death, that's how he freed you. It was by his death that he exposed the powers for what they are. Illegitimate, helpless, and foolish. The powers that attempt to bring you into death and darkness, he exposed them. Most kings, when they go to conquer their enemy, what do they do? They go on a war horse and they take a sword and they run their enemies through so that they can proclaim victory, right? How did Jesus come into Jerusalem to see his enemies? He came in on a donkey and he came in to people like you and I who act like his enemies. Sometimes we do. We act like Jesus's enemies, but rather than coming in and conquering us, he died for us. He looked at the people that were gathered around the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're in bondage. And by his death, he sets us all free and he gives us his forgiveness and he does it by his death. He takes all of that cruelty that wants to well up in us, all that hate, all that indifference, and he exposes it for what it is. And he says, I'm going to put that to death. How am I going to do it? I'm going to die. I'm going to bear that all. Jesus takes away the law. He kills your sin. He destroys your death in his body. He judges the devil and crucifies him and he throws him down into hell. Everything that used to torment and oppress you now has been put to death. Jesus has disarmed it and made a public example of everything that would drag you into any other place except God's mercy and love. So on the cross, we see that Jesus is coming to set us free to set us free from a, captive, from, a, from a captor that's too great for us. So that's how Jesus did it. He did it by his death. Now we're going to finish up by, so what? What do we do with this reality? What do we, if this is true, if this is what did Jesus do on the cross, he put to death the powers that hold you in bondage. What does that mean for you now? What do we take away from this? And I could sum it up in just one word. You are free. You have Freedom. You no longer are bound, you are free. That's the truth about you and I. Sometimes we live as if we're still bound, but we are free. And I want to say it in two different ways and then we'll be done. You have freedom from the things that bind you 
and you have freedom for the things you can do. You have freedom from the things that bind you, and you also have freedom for the things you can do. Here's the first one. You have freedom from the things that bind you. There are lots and lots of different things that bind us. I suspect as I'm saying that, you probably have things in your mind that you feel bound by. Depression or anxiety or frustration or financial constraints. There's lots of different things. Let me talk about one, and I'm kind of drawing from my own experience here. One of the things that can bind a human being by these powerful spiritual forces, one of those things is bitterness. There may be something in your life, maybe something that happened a long time ago, and you think everything was going fine until that time, and I got to that time, and after that, things just went down. I didn't want that to happen. It wasn't supposed to happen. And now you've become bitter. You think, okay, this is what life is. It isn't what I thought it was going to be. It's not going to be really good at all, but I'm going to bear it out. And it's a kind of bitterness that imprisons you and makes life smaller and darker, and it begins to bear down on you. Maybe it's not something that happened a long time ago. Maybe it's somebody in your life right now. Maybe it's somebody that's close to you and somebody that's hurt you in some kind of way and it's made you bitter. And you look at this person and it doesn't mean what they did wasn't bad, but now it's made you bitter and it's kind of confined you. And the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us is we have freedom from that bitterness. We have freedom from the things that would make us bitter and constrain our life and make it smaller. Jesus Christ has broken that power. Is it still going to exert force in your life sometimes? Yeah. Sometimes when you cut the head off the snake, it still shakes a little bit. But what Jesus has done for you is he's broken all the chains. And you don't have to be bound by that anymore. You don't have to be bound by bitterness. Here's one more. Is that sometimes in this life, which is so hard, we find ways to soothe ourselves. Sometimes there are good ways to soothe yourself when you're feeling anxious or when you're feeling dark or when you're feeling depressed. Sometimes we find ways to soothe ourselves. It might be a good show that you really like. It might be that you like to take a walk. It might be that you pray. It might be a time with a friend. But sometimes what you and I do, what human beings do, is we find ways to soothe ourselves that are not helpful. We find ways to soothe ourselves where we check out and we can get away and we can put the difficult and hard things out of our lives. And it might be alcohol. It might be abusing alcohol in a really unhelpful way. It might be drugs. It might be pornography. It might be ordering a lot of things online and shopping. It might be gambling. There are any number of things that we can do. And we say, this is the way I'm going to soothe myself. I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it. And what I'm telling you right now is you have freedom from that kind of bondage. And it's not going to be easy to shake that off, but that does not have power anymore for you. He who is in you, that's Jesus, is greater than he who is in the world. That's the devil and all those demonic powers. Those things are dying. Those things are dead. Jesus has put them to death by his death. And it is as sure as the death of Jesus. So that the death of Jesus, you know what he said? He says, it's finished. It's all done. It's over. No, no, no. It's not. It's, it, it's no longer holding you. You have freedom from those things that bind you. Do you believe that? Yeah. Amen. I'm still learning it too. We have to convince each other. We have to tell each other the truth. Sometimes it's hard to believe what's true. You not only have freedom from the things, now you have freedom for things too. You have freedom for things to do. I love to be up here and see all your faces because you know what I start to think about? I start to think about the ways that God is going to send you out into this world this week. 
and to do loving and kind and great things. He's gonna send you out to do the things that God has prepared for you to do. And one of the great ways you can see this is in the fruit of the Spirit. Do you know that passage from Galatians? It's not gonna come up here on the screen, but the book of Galatians tells us that when God is in your life, you're gonna start bearing fruit. It says the fruit of the Spirit in your life is gonna be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then do you know what it says? It says, against such things, there is no law. That means against love and peace and patience and self-control and gentleness and kind, all those things, there's nothing holding you back. No law against it. No bondage. No shackles. You can go out and be kind and gentle and loving. Let's just isolate two. Here's the first one. You are free to be kind. You are free to be kind to people in your life that need kindness. You know, I said this in the first service. I said, is there anybody that you can think of that needs kindness in their life? And a lot of times I think we could identify somebody that needs kindness. Sometimes the people that need kindness most, maybe those are people that have the, we have the hardest time to show kindness to. If it's somebody that you already like, I'm not sure it's kindness. And it's just fun. I can be nice to somebody that I really like, but somebody that you struggle with or that you're frustrated by, it'll be hard, but there's no law against it. You're free. Jesus has made you free for that. Here's this last one. Jesus has made you free to bring peace. And I'm going to use the word peace in kind of the ancient Hebrew way of thinking about it, shalom. That means that there are schools and that there are organizations, and that there are governmental structures, and that there are things going on here in Union County, in your sphere of influence, in your life, those places need shalom. I don't just mean peace, like peace, keep it okay, take a nap on the couch while you watch Netflix. That's not peace. It's good, but it's not peace. Peace is shalom, bringing wholeness. It's people getting fed who are hungry and it's people getting clothed that are naked and it's people being reconciled who are at odds with one another. And it's being able to be together with people in love and in peace because there's no law against that and Jesus Christ has broken down the barriers that would keep us from that. Jesus Christ is your champion. He is the victor. You don't have to worry about who wins. Jesus Christ has already won. He's put to death, death. And now it's our part to live as if that's true, because it is. Is that true? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, help us to see that it's true, that by your son, Jesus Christ, you have put death to death. You've crucified the devil and thrown him into hell. And you have made us your children so that we can live in ways of peace and love and gentleness and faithfulness and kindness. We pray, Father, that you'd help each one of us to see that Jesus has done that for us and help each person here to see that Jesus has done this for the whole world and then help us to see what we have freedom from. I pray for each person here, including myself, who feels they're in bondage. Help us to not be bound by the things that drag us into death and darkness. Help us by your strength. We don't have the strength, but help us by your strength to be free put people around us, put situations and circumstances around us that are from you, that have your fingerprints on them, that would give us freedom. Freedom from the things that bind us. And then give us freedom for 
give us opportunities. God, send this group of people out. Send the group of people out who are watching this online to go out into the world and to be your spiritual soldiers, to be the platoon of people that are going to bring your love, your good news, your forgiveness. God, you love us and you care for us. We are grateful. And so we ask for all these things, not in our own strength, but in the strength of our Savior, Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen.